0: Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. And compassion will lead us home, back to a healthier, more equitable global society if we urgently now direct our attention, resources, best learned COVID-19 prevention practices, and health expertise, perhaps also virtual, toward communities in developing countries with little or no local health infrastructure. These small village communities and larger urban slums or refugee camps are the most vulnerable now to becoming infected by the coronavirus, a virus which has largely spread from the developed world to the developing world seemingly overnight. How do you stay home when you're homeless? And conversely, how can you sleep at night without contributing somehow to the COVID-19 fight, knowing that others who live in the dark have, to a high quality of life, the same birthright? Let's not forget that the poverty, hunger, conflict, and climate refugee crisis are still with us. And these people, these communities, are not now safe. They are the least resilient against the coronavirus, and they will be the communities to advance a second global wave of COVID-19, if we're not careful now. In my interview with Dr. David Nabarro in our continuing series, Combating COVID-19 with Compassion, it is abundantly clear that we as a global society have a massive opportunity to invest in the long-term health of our future, to finance a complete upgrade of developing world health infrastructure, to reset our global economy, trending more toward greater equality, and to create a safer society, practicing better hygiene and living more nutritious, healthy lives. If we play our cards right now, We can stay ahead of the COVID-19 curve while scientists find a vaccine, and we can leverage the crisis to rebuild together a better world, more resilient, more prepared for future crises, more energy and resource efficient, and optimally more humanitarian. I'm here again with Dr. David Nabarro, who is a special envoy to the COVID-19 crisis for the World Health Organization. Thanks for joining, David.
1: Thank you. Pleased to be here.
0: Yes, I, I know you're quite busy these days, so let's be really crisp with our interview here and really get to some of the main issues that I know are concerning people, especially when we think about the topic of this whole series, combating COVID-19 with compassion. We've gone and discussed a few different topics about the crisis, about the disease itself, its potential for for spread and transmission, and then really went to the issue of what we can do to build Solidarity locally and contribute to our communities. Now, if we look toward some of the real issues I know that are concerning you these days, that is the spread of this disease and the ability for developing countries to really deal with this crisis. It's a very different array of concerns, it seems, in the developing world. So, what's happening now? What are the discussions? What are the developing countries really worried about in spreading this virus and in containing it essentially?
1: Thanks very much indeed. You're absolutely right that the focus has to be on containing outbreaks of disease that are caused by the coronavirus wherever they start and containing them very, very quickly because any delay can lead to an exponential increase in the numbers of people who are sick. And that in turn, not only has huge implications for their own health, but also it completely overloads health services and leads to real risks for health workers, as well as the unavailability of health services for people with other conditions. So therefore, the big focus always is on detecting cases of COVID-19, that's people who are infected with the virus, early on, as soon as they appear, and trying to prevent them from being able to spread the virus to others. And that's done by quickly diagnosing them and then isolating them away from others so that they can't spread the disease. Now, in order to help that isolation work, we need strong health services in the community. And if health services are not fully developed, then it's very difficult to identify people and to isolate them, especially as quite often it's not possible to test them because the availability of facilities for testing for the virus is still quite undeveloped. So therefore what we do is to encourage all countries to really strengthen their community-based public health services. Some countries have found that it's taking them time to get their public health services up to scratch, and so they introduce widespread physical distancing, and that means what is commonly called a lockdown. That's Reduces the amount that people are in contact with each other, but it has serious social and economic consequences, particularly for poor people who are in the informal economy, who depend on daily wages for being able to buy their food or other necessities. In developing countries where the virus comes in, it can quickly start transmitting, particularly if it's come into crowded communities. But if a lockdown is introduced, as it has to be sometimes in order to get control over transmission, the immediate implications are really serious impoverishment for millions and perhaps hundreds of millions of people in some cases. And so that's happening in poorer countries. And that's why we have to be ready to support countries both to have the public health infrastructure to be able to detect cases and isolate them, and at the same time to be in a position to be able to ensure that poorer people can get the food they need and the other essentials they require for their existence. And all this has to be done really fast because the virus doesn't wait. And that's the big, big challenge right now. Quick upgrade yeah. of public health and quick elaboration and implementation of measures to reduce the consequences of the containment strategies.
0: I know this morning there was a discussion within the UN and UN personnel on how to protect UN personnel that are Mm. working around the world on humanitarian causes. I mean, the issue of poverty and the refugees, homelessness, you know, still haven't gone away with the virus. And the UN is ground central for these global humanitarian efforts and now are grounded. How are you working with these local capacities. I think the developed world doesn't have a sense of really what that looks like and how reduced the public health services really are locally and how vital the UN and all the different Red Cross and organizations have been to supporting these these communities. And now they're limited in their capacity to deliver those services from abroad.
1: Yes, it is a big challenge in settings that are what we call humanitarian crises, where there are large numbers of people gathered together, perhaps as refugees escaping from violence or other deprivation. And they depend hugely on both local non-governmental organizations, as well as different parts of national governments that are hosting the refugees. Plus enormously also on the United Nations, different organisations, which have for a long time been involved in supporting people who are in very difficult situations. When the virus comes into these kinds of communities, it can be transmitted very, very quickly because people live close together. And so the first thing is to involve community leaders straight away, to alert them as to what's going on, encourage them to be able themselves to be organised, to take action, to interrupt transmission of the virus with isolation and other processes. But it's so hard in a very tightly packed refugee situation. It's so hard also in a humanitarian crisis where there's war underway. And so that means that we really do have to find the local leaders and empower them and work with them and then quickly ramp up public health. Health services so that the necessary health support is there. The UN actually is doing its really level best to deal with this. Its staff are totally focused on the nature of the problem. They're learning how to deliver services, even though they've got to maintain physical distancing. And they are putting the needs of those who are most in need and sometimes hardest to reach right at the front of their agenda. They've obviously needed some extra resources and they've appealed for considerable extra funding. But most importantly, I want to stress to everybody that the needs of those who are most disadvantaged, who are in war situations, who are in refugee settings, are being taken fully into account. And the UN is acting on behalf of those people with its partners in order to try to make sure that they are able to be as organized as possible to interrupt transmission, and if they get sick, to get medical care.
0: I just want to do a shout out for the COVID-19 Response Fund that's all over the World Health Organization site. Because I know that people who are living in a, a less dire situation and are really locking down in their homes, you know, aren't able to go out and eat out and entertain outside of the home. And so I can imagine there's quite a cost savings there. I know some friends that have had virtual pub parties and have celebrated birthdays virtually. So wouldn't it be amazing if that saved resource could be directed towards something like the COVID 19 Response Fund for exactly these sorts of humanitarian efforts? Because it feels like there's real opportunity here to upgrade the healthcare system globally and also to integrate technology more into the healthcare providing, as far as training people locally on the ground. So can you speak to where these resources would go when those that are keen into this podcast have the opportunity to help? And that's, again, the COVID-19 Response Fund on the World Health Organization site.
1: Thank you very much. Those of us who live in developed countries are used to being able to access health facilities with good quality services, with health workers who are protected. And who've got equipment, and also we're used to having public health capacity in our communities that will enable us to be protected against infectious diseases. Of course, even with this COVID 19, we've seen how in advanced countries these facilities can easily be stretched. But just imagine you're in a country that's spending 1,000 times less per person on health care. Imagine you're in a country where there are not health personnel easily available who can provide the services you require. Imagine that they have just have absolutely nothing in the way of protective equipment and medicines, because that's what is the situation in many developing countries. And it's particularly serious in what we call humanitarian crisis settings, where people have arrived to get away from some kind of war or natural disaster, and they desperately depend on external support for health care. That's where things like the World Health Organization Solidarity Fund for COVID-19 is so important. It's the World Health Organization and other parts of the United Nations system, as we call it, including the Office of the UN High Commission for Refugees, including the United Nations Children's Fund and other similar organizations that, along with the World Health Organization, are there to bring services to those most in need. But they do need cash. These are organizations that are not running around with large budgets. They have very, very limited funds, and they have to do everything they can, firstly, to make sure that technical advice gets to the settings where it's most needed. Secondly, to get essential supplies, like testing equipment, like protective equipment for health workers, and like particularly the emergency supplies that are needed to keep people alive. But also, there's a need for additional support for the kind of backup that governments have to provide because they don't have very well-developed health services. So the cash needed to enable poorer countries to boost their health services by being able to pay their health staff and any new personnel that are brought on because of the demands of COVID-19. That's why this kind of response fund is needed. And when you say, when you look at the numbers, the WHO appealed for somewhere in the region of $600 million, I can tell you that's a tiny proportion of the total amounts going to be required to support developing countries and the need therefore to go on digging into our pockets to make sure that the resources get to these international funds right now quickly quickly is absolutely critical. Funds now enable rapid response. Any delay actually means that the virus gets ahead of us and so that's why I'm encouraging everybody who has got any resources, to move it into the COVID response fund. There's all the instructions on the WHO website as quickly as possible. I can assure you that the monies will be very well used. Every single dollar that is given to the WHO is very tightly accounted for. And that is the organisation that exists to support the health needs of poorer countries, which really don't have anything like the funds to put into their health services that we see in some of the wealthier countries, those in North America and in Europe.
0: I'm really glad that you spoke to the relative resource need, the IMF, in another UN press briefing, was suggesting that with combined funds from other development banks and of course relief funds for countries that they're looking at trillions of dollars needed to really combat in a systemic global way the covid crisis so when you're talking about hundreds of millions and then trillions these are very different amounts of money so can you speak also to the larger resources that governments are putting into not just saving lives but also livelihoods because of course It's one thing to survive and then have to recover at one point from this crisis. And so I know it's important for governments to be also resourcing. And there are some really great examples of good governance. Prime Minister Modi and uh, I think $2,400 million given and 100 million homes resourced, families resourced with food and supplies. So could you speak to some good governance models that you're finding evolving as you're speaking to different country governments?
1: Thank you very much indeed. First of all, why is money needed? Money is needed urgently to strengthen basic health services at community level so that people with COVID can be identified and isolated quickly and transmission chains can be stopped at the earliest possible time. Money is needed for poor people who are affected by the containment measures that have to be introduced. In some cases, we have heard of tens or even hundreds of millions of poor people who are just unable to get the food they need because they're not getting their daily wages for the normal work they do. They may be labourers or they may be involved in providing service in different parts of the community, and suddenly their opportunities to earn have diminished. And so they need to have cash in order to be able to buy the food that they need to live. Because the last thing we want is a hunger crisis on top of a health crisis. And the third is monies that are needed to rebuild afterwards there are going to be many small enterprises that are going to go bankrupt there are going to be many farmers who are going to find that they can't sell their produce there are many laborers who are going to find that they've gone into much greater debt so recovery money Is also important. Now, you're quite right in saying that this has huge implications for national governments. And I've been listening to the amounts of money that the Indian government is having to put in to deal with the needs. But it's not just India, it's every developing country is having to open up their coffers and find whatever cash they can. And that's why they're having to go to the international organizations for help, the World Health Organization for Help on Health, and the United Nations more generally for help on uh, dealing with the humanitarian crises that we just talked about. And then the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank for resources to help them to deal with the extreme funds that they need to deal with the acute needs of their people. This is big money. And one of the things that I've said is that we don't quite know what the bill is going to be, because we have no idea where this pandemic is going to lead us to. So much depends on the ability of countries to get ahead of the virus and to get on top of the pandemic. But even looking at current projections, it's quite clear, as the Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, has said, that the bill is likely to be in the trillions of dollars. And that sort of money is going to be needed. Otherwise, it'll be really hard for developing countries to catch up from what they're going to lose as a result of this pandemic and the responses. And the long-term damages could be very severe indeed, really affecting the well-being and livelihoods of hundreds of millions of people. So money now, money to the organisations that can direct it right, money to focus on the most immediate needs of people everywhere and money to help with the reconstruction afterwards.
0: Money matters. And, you know, but just to change it to more of a positive narrative as well, what I just keep thinking is the good news is that when resources are delivered now and when this investment is now needed in developing countries, it really does upgrade the healthcare system and access to resources for potential future crises. It builds this resilience and sustainable communities that are locally supportive of one another. And at the same time, it changes behavior. I mean, now everyone's washing their hands. You know, how long have the healthcare professionals globally just tried to get soap to people? People to be able to be you know clean in their environments because there are lots of other waterborne airborne diseases and viruses you know floating around the world and nothing obviously at this pandemic scale but going forward it could be that this investment actually in a strange way long term helps us save resources and build that resilience so there's not such a dependency and not totally. such a disparity
1: I totally agree the most important asset that poorer countries have is actually their people. And what we see time and time again in all the poor countries with which we're working, extraordinary ingenuity by local entrepreneurs, often women, in actually finding ways to be better organized to deal with this threat. We've been talking to a colleague of ours with whom we're closely linked in Kenya, who is telling us how the community groups that she works with are actually taking advantage of all the different that they have for solidarity and for keeping safe to be able to work together to get on top of the situation and to be doing it as a group and they're working for example with local officials with local police with local businesses who are all joining the battle and who are all behaving collectively together okay so at the beginning there might have been some disbelief but after a few days they have pulled together in an extraordinary way And we find, as you say, that in these situations, behavior changes. And it's things that really matter. It's hygiene, and it's all the things associated with hand washing is a chance to talk about keeping ourselves clean despite some of the difficulties of lack of water or lack of soap. It's a time to talk about ways in which together we can maintain a healthier community and we can also support the health services so that they can work better. And then what we find is that really very small amounts of money go an incredibly long way. Oftentimes I've been really surprised that a sum perhaps of a thousand to two thousand dollars equivalent just given to a community organization can really help them to be organized for several months. They know how to use small amounts of money really well and they account for it super carefully. And again, it's often the women leaders who are keeping the books and are making sure that the money is well spent. And as you say, this does lead to better health. It leads to people knowing how they can increase their life expectancy and reduce their sickness as a result of different practices. And you know, better health in one part of the world has implications for all of us, we're all at risk if there are illness in one place. The moment the big outbreaks of COVID in North America and in Europe are actually a threat for the whole world because people do travel around and they do take disease with them. And so I'm very, very keen that we help poorer countries be strong in the face of this threat that's actually very much coming from some of the richer parts of the world right now. And we want to make sure that they're able to defend themselves and, as a result, have more sustainable development and well-being for all their people.
0: Well, and it's also technology transfer too. I watched this amazing video in the UAE about the way that they're testing. It's so well-organized. Each of the units that they come in for their testing, it's massively efficient. There is a cost involved. So perhaps it could be something of a charity cost or something that could be added to that to then transfer that technology to another part of the world. Because a system that they have in place in the UAE, and I'm sure in other countries, and if you look at Spain, or you look at the UK, and how different countries are utilizing these vacant conference spaces for these pop-up hospitals, at least from the news beats I've seen, you know, look quite well supplied and quite well organized. You know, I think that there are great models for innovation, as well, that can be transferred as ideas and technologies that can be used, again, back to the virtual health doctor and preventative care and all the kinds of education that you're putting out through the World Health Organization, this can be transferred to these developing countries as well so that the virus doesn't, like you were saying earlier in another conversation, cycle back to us in another wave, because that can also happen.
1: It'll go on, it'll go on. And I want to stress that there's a lot being learned From different country experiences. For example, we've learned such a lot from what South Korea and Singapore have been able to do. And there is plenty of that experience that can be applied in other countries. We're learning such a lot from the experiences of some African nations in getting communities organised. We're learning a lot about income transfer, transferring funds to poorer people from what India is doing, something you mentioned just now. And you've just described an experience from a Middle Eastern country about drive-through testing, which certainly also can be applied elsewhere. This is a time for sharing learning with each other. There are many things we can learn from countries that are perhaps poorer than ours about how to get organised to quickly respond to outbreaks. And a lot can be done with relatively small amounts of money. Yes, money is needed, but the reality is that whatever money is available will be spread very widely and it will have a lot of impact in building stronger systems. And I can assure you and I can assure those who listen to us that these international mechanisms for moving money The mechanisms that really keep an eye on every penny or every cent and try to make sure that it is properly spent and that it leads to long term benefits for everybody.
0: Well, I wanted to also go back to your beautiful point on African communities teaching us how to support the collective, because I think this, not just actually technology, but there's so much can be learned about this village, small community mentality how these communities have had to maintain their own personal resilience because no one else is coming to help them. And so there's a ton of intelligence that can be gained, cultural intelligence that one can learn from really looking at how some local developing countries are are working to support and how that that's important. Indigenous people's way of life and culture and thinking that they're not separate from their community. They're not an an island and of themselves. They're connected to the environment and to their community in a way that is real. And now that type of mentality is really something that we can bring to the table and evolve humanity, I think.
1: Absolutely. I've seen so many times how local communities, especially indigenous people, have a whole series of ways of working that connect them to natural systems. They see life in terms of interconnected systems and they build on that for their resilience. Their resilience is key. And so they tell me, we do know about diseases that appear and lead to large-scale suffering and death. We do know how to keep ourselves strong and how to understand what we need to do to be strong in the face of these threats. We sometimes find that we're super lacking in essential funds and so on to enable us to do it, that we have the innate skills, the long learned skills, the knowledge within our systems that we can bring to bear in the face of these threats, and we're ready to do so. And I want to stress to you and to others that this capacity of communities everywhere to find within their traditional knowledge and know-how the capacity to be resilient in the face of threats. That's what's going to bring them through this particular crisis. And we may find that communities that are well-organized are the ones that are most easily able to get on top of the virus. And the ones that are less well-organized or who've forgotten how to be organized will be the ones who struggle a bit.
0: Or have forgotten to care about their neighbor.
1: Of course. Within that, when I talk about communities being organized, I think of the system that's been developed in Kenya, where each person is keeping an eye on the 10 neighbours to the left, the 10 neighbours to the right, and they're making sure that they know what's going on. It's not done as any kind of intrusive behaviour. It's just done because that is what solidarity is all about. We basically all depend on each other because together we're strong, but if we separate, we are weak. And that is built into the thinking in many of the communities with whom I've worked. Of course, They get split a bit by the realities that there's jobs in the cities and people run off to the city to look for work. But they still at their heart know that within the community, it is the bonds between people that make them strong. It's not finding reasons to be at odds with each other. They know that that weakens them. So they do everything possible to find ways to resolve disputes in a manner that keeps them working strongly together with bonds that hold them strong in the face of different enemies that might come their way. And that's particularly this virus, which is a hidden enemy.
0: Well, and this is a beautiful point. Many of those cultures as well, when someone is sick, the community comes together in some sort of ritual to help them become well, because the thought of an illness is that it's something that's come from the outside that's disrupted the integrity in the community and the community dynamic. So it's yes. just, it's a, it's a whole nother worldview that so many of us could learn from right now. And I think it's, so. It's beautiful. On that note, and I know that we're reaching the end of our time, I really just want to ask one final question because it'll be really relevant to what we've just been talking about. Yes. And that is with the vaccinations. Yes. So as the vaccine is being developed, and, you know, there's a real global effort on that track. I know that Dr. Tedros, Secretary General for the World Health Organization, yesterday in the UN press briefing really addressed the issue of vaccinations yes. and and the testing process being one that's carried out with full ethics and that the distribution of the vaccinations, I can imagine, also needs to be the whole protocol that's set needs yeah. to be one that delivered in an equitable way. Obviously, you've started to think about how that could actually happen. Maybe you could just share some insights into that discussion.
1: I was involved, as you know, in the Ebola outbreak in 2014, 2015, and I watched the extraordinary efforts to develop a vaccine and then to establish protocols for enabling people to access that vaccine. You have to be very careful about this. Let's start with the vaccine itself. First of all, remember this is a coronavirus, and they're not easy viruses against which to develop viable vaccines. And so we mustn't assume that it's just gonna be an easy job. Secondly, as soon as a candidate vaccine is available, it's essential to test that it really works and that it is safe. And there's a series of steps that are required for testing these things out, and they do take time. And so we have to believe plenty of time for that work to be done properly. Nobody wants vaccines to be used that somehow turn out not to be appropriate. And I don't want anybody to suggest that there are people on whom the vaccine can be tested because there's nothing else to offer them. Everybody needs to be offered a vaccine that is safe and efficacious. And so then how do we set about once we've got the vaccine, once it's been tested ensuring that everybody who needs the vaccine can get it. It has to be manufactured in large enough quantity for everybody. If there's a scarcity, then there'll be a big struggle and a fight, and there'll be lots of battles about who gets it. So it's important that there's enough for all. And then protocols are needed to make sure that those who most need it get it first. And they are health workers, health workers all over the world, because they are most exposed. And so making sure we go through all the steps of safety and efficacy testing and then adequate manufacture, and of course, trying to do that at an affordable cost, and then making sure that it gets to those who need it the most when they are available to receive it. Those are the priorities. And I know that there are many working on this right now. And they are very mindful of the need to do this in a safe, effective and ethical manner. That is at the centre of all of our thinking. And that is what we will prioritise as the vaccine becomes available.
0: And that's- the actual testing ground for the vaccine is not just relegated to certain developing countries. I know this was also an issue that actually Dr. Tedros was addressing, that in the testing process and protocol, that all will be tested and treated equally and properly. And he just had beautiful message at the end that all human beings are going to be treated like human beings in both the testing or the development of the antibodies for the vaccine, as well as for the distribution.
1: Yeah, well, I can only echo Tedros' words, you know. uh, It's really important. In public health, we believe that all humans are equal. All humans have the same right to life. All humans deserve to have treatments that are efficacious and safe. And we hate the reality that in this world, there are huge disparities, depending on where you're born or where you live when it comes to accessing healthcare. But this is really important in this case. The vaccine needs to be tested properly and ethically using all the right protocols. And there is no community that should somehow be singled out to be the testers of the vaccine just because they happen to be living in a particular place or belong to a particular community. This is a global issue. It needs a global response based on global ethics of all lives being equal and having the same value. There's no other way to do it. And in that regard, Tedros is absolutely, in my view, absolutely correct. And I'm so pleased that he spoke out so strongly on this issue yesterday.
0: Thank you so much, David. You're brilliant. You're compassionate. And I'm just so glad you're on the front lines.
1: Well, others others are more on the front lines than me, Catherine. And I salute them, really. I really do. Thank you for this chance to speak with you. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.